Hi, this is M. Allen Cunningham. I'm an author, publisher, and teacher in Portland, Oregon, and you're in the Atelier. In the Atelier is a place for occasional thoughts on literature, writing, the life of the imagination. Come on in. I'm glad you're here. Today's installment, an Atelier Special. Atelier Specials feature original creative content, including essays, fiction, and excerpts. For today's inaugural Atelier Special, an autobiographical essay, a meditation on time, memory, and how exactly we trace our beginnings. Variations on a Beginning 1. I could say at the outset that my father stood nearly six foot eight, that for most of my boyhood he drove a potato chip truck, that his mother was a school teacher, his father the chief of police, that they were members of all the clubs and fraternal societies, the Masons, the Shriners, the Elks, that they were community figures in Watsonville, California, a small agricultural town on Monterey Bay, founded on a long-lost campsite of the 1769 Portola Expedition. They lived in the Red House with leaded windows and Victorian turrets on the little lane called Sudden Street. They drank and smoked themselves to death because that was the way of life for happy, prosperous, vivacious folks in their time. My father always told us children of the hours he passed lying awake in his boyhood room listening to his parents' rattling throats, their wheezing and hacking down the hall, and vowed to himself he would never touch a cigarette. Two. I could begin with guns, and not because they're unique to my story. The chromium and plastic six-shooters I wore on holsters on every errand with my mother. My grandfather's five-pound paperweight, which was a massive black pistol encased in lead, One of several mementos surviving from his desk at the station, it was, or so we grandkids were told, something he'd wrenched from a fugitive's grip during an altercation and arrest, then had cast in lead as a souvenir. The 22 gauge rifle with which my father was shot one day in the late 1950s while playing with his sister shooting targets at a campground. The dense black smudge of the bullet forever lodged in his shin as he never tired of showing us and how he would tell the story. I came in limping, saying, Mom, I'm shot, I'm shot, she shot me. And do you know what Grandma said? Oh, Stephen, she said, stop your fooling and go back outside. And then when she looked and saw the blood, she gasped so deep she almost fainted. My father, his leg outstretched on the ottoman, his trouser cuff rolled, parts the bristling black hairs on his shin as he tells it. And my brother and I lean closer. Three. There are many starting points, it seems. Memories and anecdotes shaken loose from the narrative I or my folk have constructed. Pieces that don't seem to fit in any one place. For instance, some years ago, my mysterious inability to wear a watch. How the hands would come loose and swing about the dial. 
Three different watches I tried, and, one after the other, returned them all defective. Always the hands were fixed when I bought a watch, adrift once I'd worn it a day or so. This, of course, is not a story, but merely something that happened, which is different. And I might tell how this mystery passed, how eventually I could wear a watch again. I wear one now. But this is not the same thing as a story's end. Are we rooted in stories, narratives, anecdotes, or something else? A loose and airy soil, a depository for oddments of all kinds. How do we begin to tell where we came from? the things that shaped us, or seemed to. 4. The order of events, I've long believed, is not so important. The truth is much larger than chronology, and sequence alone, convincing as it may be, can serve to explain in only the most specious way. Because the truth is, isn't it, that so little can stand on explanation. What joins our days together into a lived experience is not the linear, calendric, forward march of hours, months, years, and epochs which, for the sake of civilization, orders time for us by our consent. What joins our days together into a lived experience is, more truthfully, a vague webwork, a gossamer of associations, memories, and sensations. However much we claim to believe in a standardized chronology of event, this gossamer remains central to who and what we are. Adhering to the skeleton of memory, it catches everything, or everything important, storing impressions we rarely understand at first. But like a language, as one learns it, these impressions accrete meaning over time. 5. Edmund Jabez said, quote, When you write, you do not know whether you are obeying the moment or eternity. Unquote. Isn't that also a description of what it's like to be alive, to possess consciousness and memory? Italo Calvino said, quote, In practical life, time is a form of wealth with which we are stingy. In literature, time is a form of wealth to be spent at leisure and with detachment, unquote. And yet there's the rigid demand placed on writers today that they sell their stories to the reader, beginning with page one and continuing with every page thereafter. Always a forward march. I'm not unaware of this demand, but oh, the perverseness, expecting little from the writer beyond manipulation, little from the reader beyond passivity. Dear reader, dear listener, how about this? I sell you nothing. Selling is a publisher's business. What you hear is freely given, my consciousness to yours. And may your listening be something like the Zen experience Master Shunryo Suzuki Roshi describes. Quote, it is not like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet, little by little. Unquote. 6. But narrative, which I do believe in, what is that, and where does it fit when one seeks to retell a thing from its beginning? To narrate, 
from the Latin naratus, which is the plural of narare, and stems from gnarus, or knowing, and relates to gnotsere, or nocere, to know. So saith Webster's Ninth. One knows something, then, or comes to know something, and tells the story of coming to know it, or, in telling the story, comes to know it. Shades upon shades, but none of them, let us note, associated with selling. No. For to know, to come to know, and to tell one's way into knowing, these are not of the order of merchandise, but of gift. 7. I've long loved the biblical story of Samuel, which is about hearing a voice, about listening and coming to know. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call my son, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. I could start then with Samuel, and how I first learned his story late one night when I was nine or ten years old and heard, in the dark of my boyhood bedroom, a voice of my own, a voice so clear and voluble that it stirred me from my near sleep, and how this voice frightened me enough that I got up and walked down the hall to stand by my parents' bed in the dark to wake my mother and tell her about the voice, and how she asked me what the voice had said, and I told her it had said, you're going to die, and how, after a soft, sympathetic noise, my mother, still lying beside my sleeping father in their bed, told me the story of Samuel, and how I loved this story immediately, and yet couldn't help saying, but what if it wasn't God this time, and how my mother told me I should pray about it, and then I would not be afraid. So again, in the night, as it was for my father in his youth, the child's thoughts led to the parent's bed. So, as it was for Samuel, the act of discovery is a sleepwalk. The boy rises from bed to walk in the dark, to hear a story, to pray. And isn't prayer itself a sleepwalk? And isn't reading a sleepwalk also, much as writing always is for the writer? That night I went and lay down in my place, but a story had begun. Already praying myself back to sleep, I was telling myself the story. Aren't our roots a kind of sleep whose dream we are? 8. 
The year I started middle school, my mother redid the wallpaper in our house, and behind the old paper, in two places, the stairs landing and the master bathroom, she discovered large portraits drawn in charcoal. Both were very finely done, each spookily vivid with personality. For almost a week, she left them exposed, and how indelibly I remember the one on the landing, and how I sat on the stairs before it, spellbound. It was the full-body portrait of a man in uniform, a soldier. The portrait was taller than my father, nine feet in length at least, and though the soldier merely stood there, arms at his sides and boots together, and though his face staring out at me was mostly expressionless, his colossal stature alone lent him a vaguely threatening quality. I couldn't identify the soldier's uniform then, though remembering it today I see that it was plainly German and dated from World War I. He wore a spiked helmet, a pickle halba, and side whiskers, his chin neatly shaved. Adorning the stiff collar at his throat was an iron cross. Black straps intersected diagonally across his chest, and his breeches were snugly tucked into knee-high black boots. For the near week that my mother left the drawing exposed on our wall, I stared into the figure's smudged charcoal eyes. Why was this soldier there? When, if ever, would he see the light again after my mother put the new wallpaper up? Once covered over, wouldn't he still be there, always? How could our house be anything but animate after this? 9. How beautiful a secret can be, and what secrets there are in the layers of things. Jacques Derrida said, quote, If a secret cannot be maintained, we are in a totalitarian space. Unquote. Is the knowing in narrative a surrendering of all secrets? I don't think so, though we're often led to believe this. Let us agree that there are many ways to tell our stories. And yet, isn't every story a form of secrecy? Once, in St. Paul's Cathedral, I heard a voice speaking a prayer that went like this, Lord God, make us humble, unweave our thoughts, uncomplicate our hearts, that we might lay down our books and step into the dark. Some days, while sitting and working, you merely catch the hem of a thing, and that is a lot. It's a lot. Perhaps it is what matters most of all. 10. Quote, it is to be noted, Mrs. William James reported, that even after Henry James lapsed into a coma, his hands continued to move across the bedsheet as if he were writing. Unquote. The Complete Notebooks of Henry James, page 582. If to narrate is to know, then writing is always an act of searching, of seeking out what lies at the bottom of things, the roots and foundations. To write is to take root. Turning back to the dark hall, the boy of nine or ten went and lay down in his place. The story uncoils and coils again and again. Still you listen for the new inflection. The story is never not beginning.
Variations on a Beginning was originally published in the Timberline Review, issue number three, back in 2016. You can read the essay in full on Medium. Just go to medium.com slash at M.A. Cunningham. That's M underscore A underscore Cunningham. In the Atelier is produced by Atelier 26 Books. For more information, visit atelier26books.com. I'm M. Allen Cunningham. Thanks for listening. So long for now.